crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode, I'm talking to an old friend, Simon Oliver, about the ups and downs of his life in the games industry. If games aren't your thing, then don't worry. Simon's a fantastically engaging guest, and the conversation moves seamlessly from Lego through duck-billed platypuses and on to the attempt to make a 12-hour film starring Salvador Dali and Mick Jagger. Along the way, we discuss the tension between creativity and sound project management, as well as my eternal question, what is success? A couple of housekeeping items for you. Although I try to keep things clean, I did accidentally drop the F-bomb at one point, so if there are little ears nearby, you might want to watch out for that. Also, in the last seven or eight minutes, there is some discussion of mental health issues, so just a warning if that's something you don't want to hear about right now. Other than that, there's just a plea to bear with the sound quality of a Zoom recording. This episode was recorded deep in the heart of the third UK lockdown towards the end of January 2021, so there was no chance of Simon and I meeting face-to-face, sadly. Right, that's enough of that. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. I am Digital Play Director at LEGO's Creative Play Lab, which is LEGO's innovation department. And our mission is inventing the future of play. So we create new toys, uh, new products, new services. So a couple of things we did recently launched the Lego Super Mario series, um, that kind of little interactive figure, and just announced Lego Video, which is a kind of music and dance experience. And they came from the department that I work in which is create a play lab. That sounds so exciting. It's like being a chocolate tester at Cadbury's or something. It feels like that good a job is it it is it's i feel unbelievably lucky it was one of those jobs a friend sent me the job posting and i was like this is not a job that's going to come along very often i felt i had to apply it was so interesting and combined so many things that i'm passionate and interested in by so i've been there about a year now and and covid kind of hit about two months into the job so obviously it's been a weird time to start any job but i did manage to squeeze a couple of trips into billund before then and so it's Legos HQ so it's a very small little rural village where almost everyone in the village works for Lego so I think the population is it made of Lego well they do have Lego house which is a giant kind of homage to Lego it's kind of like a little mini theme park there is a Lego land in Billund as well so it's basically all these huge Lego buildings and then a small village high street with a few places to eat a few hotels to support Lego land it's not a conventional place to live but it was great going there and and getting a bit of a tour of the facilities, getting an understanding how it all fits together. Uh, and that was amazing, just being in the place that, I guess, a lot of the sets that I played as a kid were created in this place. And just seeing all the different ranges and like Technic, City, and all these things that I have fond memories of. Just being in a place where there are people creating them was, was a hugely insane experience, an amazing start to, to the job. You told me there's an acronym for people who are very nostalgic people roughly of our age who are very nostalgic about lego and that's like your what they're called again uh afold adult fan of lego they tend to be people who are older often will have had very fond childhood memories of lego but have continued mm. to play they got older and obviously you know they tend to be capable of making enormously elaborate wonderful creative sculptures. so it's great and i think that's something that that lego as a company has, has been aware of increasingly the fact that there are a lot of people there that, that are a bit older that really just love to continue to play with Lego. So some of the lines like Lego architecture, some of the more more kind of elaborate Star Wars builds will be targeted more at an adult segment. Yeah. People keep playing. You know, I think it's yeah, a nice yeah. thing that same thing with games as well. It maybe originated as something maybe more for kids, but now are 
enjoyed by a much wider range. It's amazing that some games really do stand up spectacularly well by their age. So was that what you were doing when you were a kid? Were you, were you playing computer games or were you allowed to? I wasn't allowed to when I was a bit younger. Yes, I think yeah, my passions as a kid were Lego, certainly growing up. Video games, very much so, very obsessively so. So I used to <laughs> import, you know, Japanese video games and had like one of those little, uh, yeah, so there's lots of import shops in a few import shops in Portsmouth. And we used to go and see a, a guy that sold imported video games. So we'd go and drive up there. You know, my mum very kindly drove us over there so we could buy games off this guy. I think he was charging like 50p a disc. So yeah, very much into playing video games as a kid. And also into animals. I think that's, although I've ended up working in leg with Lego and video games, I think animals is one childhood passion that never became part of my career. So maybe that's one to target next. What's your favorite? Yeah, it's the reason. Oh, that's a good question. I think biologically, probably the platypus, because it's such a bizarro creature. It's just this weird, like glued together from different parts, this weird kind of offshoot evolution. It's a mammal that lays eggs. The male platypus has 10 sex chromosomes complete weird aberration doesn't make any it's got a beak it does look like something that somebody's just made up in a taxi down place grab a few bits together and stick it together and i think the other one's probably not octopus i love octopuses they again just seem so otherworldly seen a couple diving and they are mesmerizing in the flesh so yes octopus octopuses I think it is octopuses. Yeah, so I read a book on octopuses and it said that the correct thing is octopuses. Uh, I've also heard octopi, so who knows? Okay. Mm. Animals. So we're going to go and talk a little bit about all the stuff that you did before joining Lego. But what would you say has been the kind of thread that runs through your career? I think, like a lot of people, I really struggled early on to figure out what I want to do and connect passions with a potential career path. I love drawing art and doing drawing, but I was absolutely terrible at it. <laughs> so at school, you know, I wanted to do art, but they wouldn't let me because I was so bad. Was that bad. So I was, yeah, yeah, I could not draw well. And I guess I had the ideas, but I wasn't really able to execute them. So what was in my head, I couldn't put down. And so I think that kind of led me more down the technical path, did maths, physics and chemistry at A-level, and, and then ended up doing computer science, just because I was interested in computers, I think, and they seemed really interesting and curious to me. But at the time, I was yeah, very lost, certainly early on. I was like, because everyone does the career fairs and go and speak to a career advisor. And, you know, when you do that test of what is it you'd like to do, what's a good fit? I think I got pharma. Now, I remember thinking about jobs that I'd like to do. And I was like, I like computers. I guess I could be a, a traveling computer salesman and try and sell computers to people. But I still really wanted to do the creative side as well. But it just seemed walled off. And I think that was definitely... You know, something that I was self-conscious about early on in my career was not feeling that I could ever be or have a creative role or a creative career because you end up quite siloed and technical or you're creative. And I think once you go down one path, it's probably more in my head than in reality, but it felt like that was not going to be possible or that, you know, the, the your career kind of branches off and it's very hard to move sideways, which I don't think is actually the case, but certainly careers advice at the time was much more the kind of sorting hat there is a thing that you should do. Here are the 12 jobs. We'll tell you based on your aptitude, which one is the correct job for you. Yeah, it was definitely uh, a bit of a struggle to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And it was only over time, I guess, you know, I'm, you know I guess you know, our friends and a lot of other people have a similar struggle to kind of connect passions with uh, their careers. You said walled off. What, what, what do you mean by that? You felt a path was walled off. You know, Ken Robinson, the educational Guru, the guy that gives a great TED talk on education, he's a really fascinating guy. And one of the things that he talks about is how a lot of education system, that kind of filtering that goes on early on, it's all about telling you what you can't do and mm. telling you what you shouldn't do. And it ends up eroding confidence in some areas, even if it's something that you're passionate about. And it's one of the reasons why, as we get into adulthood, a lot of people, you give somebody a pencil and ask them to draw. And then, oh, no, 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 I can't draw, I can't draw. Yeah. But you ask them to do a task that isn't their specialization, they feel very self-conscious. And then I guess it was connected to that a little bit, that the things that I wanted to do, because I'd gone down a technical route and I had not been allowed to do art at school because I was so terrible at drawing, that it felt like that was a path that I could not switch across to. And I think that the map of careers and opportunities presented by my school didn't show quite how kaleidoscopic the world of work is. 
I understand the, the reasoning of it's important to have some structure and guidance, but I think it's also really important to not make people feel like doors are closed just because at this stage there may not be a direct path there, if that makes sense. I, I know what you mean. I think I did that test and I came up with, did I come up with librarian? Was I going to be a librarian? So we met actually, we, we met at universities. Yeah. So what were your A-levels? You'd done what kind of maths? Yeah, I did maths, physics and chemistry. And then I took a year out to work at IBM. Looking back on it, a very strange decision. Everyone else was going off and, and having amazing gap years in Australia or America. But my brother did the same thing. My brother Toby uh, worked at IBM for a year and had a really good year. And I think, again, just feeling a bit lost and being like, maybe I should do that too. He had a good time. But I think at that stage, I was a little bit less self-directed in terms of you know, following passions and things. So yeah, I had a very kind of technical on-ramp. I was also sponsored at university by a company called Zarotex in Portsmouth. Uh, so I did some work for them kind of in between while I was at university and the holidays as well. But wow. they make card drives. Uh, which again wasn't necessarily my passion. I'm, I'm amazed that, not amazed, but I'm I'm jealous. I guess that you got a company to sponsor you, aged what eighteen, and they had the faith in you to give you money to study. You must have shown a lot of promise even then. I think it was a terrible decision on their part. I think that you know <laughs> it was it was obvious that I didn't have a passion for making hard drives. Apologies, basically to Zyrotex. Yeah, yeah. If anyone from Zyrotex is listening, um, I definitely feel a little bit bad. When we were at uni, I remember the first time I met you, I, ha- I didn't realise it was you, and there's a reason for this. Oh, yes, the Halloween party. First yeah. time I know I met you, because walking down the stairs, which were only really wide enough for two people, and your box of death costume, which was essentially, what, a washing machine box? Or something. I'd gone on a cardboard hunt earlier that day, and I think it was. It was definitely something appliance-sized that we found in the bins behind a department store in Bristol. Basically, it was as wide as two people. So I, I remember the Box of Death getting a lot of shoulder barges from various angry students. But I remember looking at it and uh, at the Box of Death and thinking, that is the best outfit I've ever seen. What what happened with the box of death? Because there was a competition that night, right? Yeah, it was. So it was something that for me, I think it goes back to a childhood experience where it was an Easter competition. And yeah, I guess I'm trying to work out how old I was, maybe maybe 10. Me and, and my brothers had created an Easter box costume that ended up winning like an Easter egg box, <laughs> the Easter competition. So I think something in the back of my mind was telling me that this is the direction to go. Just make a box. The box of death sounds terrifying. And to my surprise, ended up a finalist in the competition at the Halloween party, along with some people that had the most extraordinary costumes. So there's one person who had, who'd sewn their own Teletubby costume. It was <laughs> incredible. Someone else had like red contact lenses and blood coming out their eyes. And I had very shoddily assembled cardboard box with box of death written on marker pen on the front and yeah I felt woefully un- unprepared to be in so well costumed company so yeah it was a prize to me did you win yes <laughs> although I never claimed my prize so the prize I think was like 10 bottles of I mean, they call it champagne. It's probably cheap, sparkling wine. But I remember going around in my box of death with all of our friends were, were going around the cup hunting for this this free champagne. But I think maybe looking back, it was a ruse and that there was no free champagne, free sparkling wine. No. But yes, the glory, however, I did get to keep. So the reason I the reason I bring it up is one, because I love it as a story, but also I think it's a bit of an insight into your mindset as as a person that you would, A, come up with the box of death idea and then, B, go through with it. And then, mm. maybe C, win the entire fucking competition. You know, that's uh, that I really enjoyed. So I didn't know it was you at the time. I loved the box of death. And then I think when we got to know each other a few years later, the box of death story came out and I was like, no, that was you. <laughs> and I think it might have been the same night that you were telling me about um, so there was a, uh, you, you'd had an idea, because we all used to go out clubbing quite a lot, didn't we? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, this is going to be a family programme. So people will come back, um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an expression in politics, isn't there, where, you say, where somebody is um, 
they're a bit, uh, I'm trying to think. What a bit it tired is. and emotional. They're tired and emotional, yeah. Mm. So people come back from clubbing tired and emotional. And you'd come up with an idea for a like a computer game with clouds in it that would kind of help calm people down. Very lovely voice. And you'd mm. record her saying yes. very calming words like cloud or... I do remember this. Yes, and that's right. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Well, do, do you want to, rather than me, try and remember it for you? What What, what was the idea? Uh, see, I think it was it was something to provide comfort for anyone that in life experiencing anxiety. So I, I like to think of it as a, a kind of forerunner to headspace. I think if we'd have got in there first <laughs> and we were able to provide mindfulness services in the late 1990s, I think we would right now be be sitting on a a whole pile of money. So uh, yeah, I'd like to yeah. think it was very much the precursor for that. But yeah, it was. It would be an experience that you could listen to, and it would it would calm you, and it would just be nice, pleasant sounding words that uh, would ease the mind. So what did you study at university? It was it was a computing degree. Yes, computer science. Yeah, but the nice thing about Bristol, obviously, you get to try other stuff. I'm sure you did the same thing. So I did like psychology, a modern, right. you know, so a third of my degree is psychology, and a third of my degree is politics in year two so it was great to just be able to broaden it a little bit and sample those other things but yeah my main degree was computer science which is quite technical right yeah very technical so it's interesting you've gone you've got the technical side of things there but you're also trying stuff that's far more to do with people psychology politics these are Mm. as people focused as you can be is it can't it so after that what did you do what happened after university there was a, a segment in my degree called multimedia which was combining video and interactivity and that definitely piqued my interest and like this is great and I think because it combined a lot of the things that I was interested in and it was less purely technical it was using the technology as a brush as a tool to create new experiences and I think that was like yes this combines I can use the skills I do have without needing to draw to make things that are in my head and I think that was the the kind of the moment for me that this is a good path to go. I think, yeah, multimedia at the time was that we did this module and there were, we learned how to use software and different kind of visual artists like Tomato that do these kind of weird and beautiful experience and interactivity. And it seemed like such a young, interesting, weird and wonderful area to work in. And obviously it was just so fresh and exciting, you know, back in 99. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, this is great. And at the time in London, obviously there were a lot of New media agencies, digital media agencies starting up that were doing really fresh, wild, creative work. And it felt very much like the kind of Wild West at the time. There were just so much new stuff coming out all the time. And there was a program called Macromedia Flash, now Adobe Flash, although now that's been uh, kind of sunsetted, that let you create these wonderful interactive experiences in the browser. And I was like, this is all what I want to do. So I applied to a company called DeepEnd in London that were doing some of the most exciting work got an interview i remember at the time i was like should i wear a suit should i wear jeans and a t-shirt thankfully we went with jeans and a t-shirt and it was full nathan barley like the, the <laughs> studio was exactly what you imagine going to work in a digital media studio in 2000 would be like people on micro scooters and people dressed super weird it was right in the heart of shoreditch and it was but it was hugely fun being 21 and you know, working in that space. And I met my partner, Kate, uh, on my first day at work there. So oh. obviously it was the right call. I remember, um, so I've, I've spoken to a couple of people, some of them quite a bit older, actually, uh, than we are. And they, they said that the thing about computing or, or that kind of rough area of the economy is that because it's quite new or when they were going into it, it, it was quite new in the way you've described for multimedia stuff. They were saying that there was no kind of qualifications. Um, there's no real school as such. You, you, you're very, it's very meritocratic. It's very much like you turn up, you show what you can do, which you probably studied, you know, in your bedroom. And if you're good at it, you get a job. And so for um, for these guys who, by their own admission, weren't really going anywhere in mainstream education the whole IT revolution has just been a godsend for them because they are able to, you know, they don't have to do all these stuffy exams. They're just, it's just kind of your wit and mm. off you go. Did you, you, you painted a picture that feels similar. Am I, am I picking that up right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, you know, it remains 
the case to this day that the most important thing is a demonstrated ability to execute more than qualifications. So if you've got a great portfolio of work, if you've got a great reputation, nobody is going to look at your CV. Nobody's going to look at your qualifications and say, you're not right for the job. I think there are some exceptions to that, but by and large, I'd say in tech and games, it's very much the case. And it's been interesting seeing the effect of COVID before there was still at least a need for you to be co-located in the same place. So you wouldn't hire somebody in a location, say in the Far East or Eastern Europe, a place that that had that geographic distance. But I think because now people are more comfortable working remotely, it's interesting seeing the number of studios in the game space that are interested and open to remote work now that weren't before. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. So whereas before there was that barrier of qualifications, then that kind of has been lowered to the fact, you know, to make it more meritocratic, as you say. But I think we're also going to see a lowering of geographic restrictions. And I think now it will open up the gate for people globally to engage with those opportunities in a way before that they weren't able to. So I think, you know, it's that next step again is is going to start to happen. That's interesting because I thought if any industry is going to be good at that kind of thing, it would be the tech industry. And I remember, mm. you know, again, one of the things, one one of the features that a lot of the people I'm going to be interviewing has is that um, I have to be jealous of them. And I was always jealous of you getting off to San Francisco and Tokyo or Kyoto and, you know, Barcelona and places. So I always thought it was quite an international thing anyway, but but maybe not so much or... So definitely conferences plays a big part of that. And I think if you can get into the loop of giving talks in places, quite often they will cover your travel and the attendance at the conference. If your employer is, is that way inclined and encouraging you to do that. So San Francisco, for example, would have been Games Developer Conference, talked at a conference in, in Barcelona. Did spend quite a lot of time in America because this, the game studio that I was running before joining Lego, we had a publishing partner in San Francisco. And this is like right in the early days of the iPhone when we're working on a game, our first game, that they were keen for me to relocate out there just to help finish the game off. So that was the reason we were in California. And that was an amazing experience. This is like 2008, just living over there for a few months, living in, in San Francisco, just living this kind of totally different life, you know, working for this American company, making games and just enjoying the ride. The the Metro ran a piece about you. They drew this picture of, of a nerd in his bedroom in the dark, tapping away and becoming this kind of global sensation through his geekery. I remember reading it and thinking, A, being quite jealous that you'd got in the Metro, and second, so I should just say for anybody listening, the Metro is a free newspaper handed out in London, which is read on the underground and in the buses, and it was a real thing to see one of my friends in the Metro. And also, I was like, that doesn't sound anything like Simon at all. (laughs) (laughs) So what actually happened? Yeah, so it was a weird thing. I can't remember how it came about. So the publishing partner that we had in the States were just doing general press about the people they were working with. And they were working, I think, with Apple to do some PR pieces around the early iPhone launch. Our game, Rolando, was one of the games that that got promoted as part of that. So I think it came through that press outreach. And then one story landed, I think, in the Metro or the Daily Mail. And then it just kind of rippled out and was everywhere. I think it conformed to a stereotype that they felt would land well. It reflected more on the story they wanted to tell, I think, than reality. Nobody saw the squalid basement that I lived in at the time. No one saw my piles of beer cans and dirty clothes in the corner, or however they imagined it. I think it was just uh, filling in details to match the story that they felt they wanted to sell. But it was surreal. I remember at the time it published sales figures that I hadn't actually said about, and it wasn't actually an accurate sales figure. I remember freaking out at the time, going to, I don't know why they've why they said these sales figures. I'm really sorry about this. I didn't say any of this. Ah, it doesn't matter at all. And then a much more lesser fair approach to the press. I thought this is a really serious big deal. But yeah, it was super intense at the time, getting all these kind of stories printed. It was surreal and and exciting, but strange and anxiety making as well. So yeah, it was uh, it was a weird weird experience. And so, what were the stories about? Can you tell us tell the listeners what what you did? Yeah, so this was a game that that we made, a small team 
myself, a an artist called Miko, who's based in Finland, and a handful of us working with a company called Engimoco in San Francisco. We made a game very early on in the iPhone's lifespan. So this is yet 2008, just uh, at the launch of the App Store. It was one of the first games that was designed just for the iPhone, so really taking into consideration the things that made the iPhone unique. So using controls that that work well on a touchscreen, using controls that work well with the kind of tilt functionality. And at the time, there was nothing really to compare it with. So it was a very kind of wild ride and a, a super exciting journey to figure that stuff out. You know, obviously now this is very much taken for granted and it's something that is in huge widespread adoption that people play on every day but at the time it was a super fun challenge it was this blank canvas and nobody knew what kind of games would be on there and i'd love to say that i had foresight of how huge it was going to become but the truth is it was generally just something that looked interesting it was something that that i was curious about and i wanted to make something for and just happened to work out way better than, than i ever imagined it would but it was more curiosity led than any financial mm. or commercial sense on my part of finding your curiosity was a big thing for you and, and is a big mm. thing. Presumably you had to teach yourself to code for the iPhone. I'm guessing was that a new, because it was a new piece of kit, it needed new coding, I guess? I don't yeah, know. there was there was some foundational knowledge from computer science that was applicable and some work that I'd done before, but there was also a lot of new stuff specific to the iPhone that was brand new. Unfortunately, did have some support from the team in San Francisco to help the kind of coding work that I wasn't super strong at. But yeah, it was definitely a steep learning curve to kind of get my head around it. So you're teaching yourself that presumably because it's interesting and you're curious about yeah. it. Yeah. And then you had this idea for the game, games called Rolando. And then you have to make all these connections with people as well. So how on earth do you meet a game, some people in San Francisco and a guy in Finland. Where did you meet these people? How do you... What? Ah, the artist Miko that I was working with. So I was working with a, a friend a few years before this on a t-shirt site called Bounty. That He had this great idea to have a place where you can design your t-shirts, upload them, sell them as like an artist community. There are a few other things like it at the time. And Miko is one of the artists on there. And I just really loved his designs. And so when I was making this prototype, I remember, so for the game that became Rolando, I remember thinking, this is you know, the kind of style, the art style I wanted to, to go with. I wanted it to be funny and simple and charming and accessible. And I just really loved his style. So I dropped him a mail. I didn't realize that he was, uh, although his art was so incredible, he's a fully trained dentist. And this was his kind <laughs> of his side gig at the time, but he was so talented. I remember him saying that he came to have a kind of solid foundation while also pursuing his passions obviously you know becoming a professional artist is high risk so contacted him and i was like hey you know what do you think this is what i'm doing he's like sounds great so we started collaborating and i pushed out a trailer for the game and i thought it was just going to be me and him just working on something really need anybody else pushed out a trailer just around the time the app store launched the game uh, and it got picked up I think at the time there was so much interest in the app store and nobody really knew what was going to be on there. And because we were so early, there was this, this hunger for information. There was a hunger for people to find out, you know, what kind of experience is going to be on it. And because there was this vacuum, they got picked up and it did the rounds through a load of like tech news sites and Apple news sites. And then the guys at NG Moco that we ended up working with just dropped a mail and they were like, hey, have you thought about working with a publisher? And I think at the time I was like, I don't need a publisher. You know, this is the beauty of this. It's not like the old days of with Xbox and PlayStation, you need to have a publishing partner. You need to have this huge organization to kind of get your product out there. It was very different on the iPhone. I think I was like, well, I can distribute it myself. Why do I need to work with a partner? Why do I need to give you a cut of this? And they're like, have you thought about QA? Have you thought about localization? Have you thought about marketing? Have you thought about that? I was like, ah, that's a lot of work. I haven't thought about those things. So I ended up kind of chatting and they're really cool guys like based out in San Francisco and all kind of ex-EA and, and other game studios, and they had really good funding. So yeah, we ended up just just chatting and yeah, just it felt like a really good fit. So started working together. And so Rolando launched, and as my recollection is that it became the third most downloaded game on the App Store, and that the first two of those kind of came free with some other software or something. Have I got that right? It was definitely successful. We had a very good Christmas. I think one of the things with games is they tend to like, unless you're Minecraft, they tend to have a great spike at launch. You got about two weeks and then it quite rapidly decreases. And we definitely had a very good spike. 
and we were in the top charts for a while and then it did drop off quite quickly after that but we had a very good start again because there wasn't much in the store and it was quite unique and that it was uh, designed to be easy to play and designed to be something that works really well on on the iphone but yeah we had a very good a very good run the most interesting thing for me was that i even you know back then i, I was thinking in hollywood movie terms so i was like well my friend simon is this guy who has taught himself how to code he's he has done this in his bedroom, albeit a much tidier one than maybe the newspapers try to portray. And it's a kind of rags to riches here. In a Hollywood story, you would then you shoot for the star. You'd keep going. But that's that's not quite what happened, is it? That in itself was really interesting, in my view. But uh, I don't know. I'll let, let you tell the story. It had long been a dream to have my own game studio, to have something where I can create games and I can realize a lot of the ideas that I had. And so I felt like I'd won a golden ticket and it was great to take the money that we made from Rolando and the sequel that we launched soon after, and then put that into making something even bigger. And so that was my thinking is this is it. This is a path of building the studio. And I put it into something much more ambitious. And we did a game called Okaboo PlayStation 3 that launched a few years later. That was a classic case of just I bit off way more than I could chew and the ambitions were just so much bigger than I was really prepared to take on from every capacity in terms of running a business running a project that big technical challenges understanding a very different set of consumers working without a publisher whereas obviously we had a publisher before we're working on something that was an enormously complicated platform with PlayStation 3 is a lot more challenging to create for than an iOS. And so I tried to take all those challenges on simultaneously. And I think it was dumb. I think it was dumb. It was a bit <laughs> greedy. It was way too ambitious. And it turned into a nightmare. It was it was a torturous process. Overworked. The money that we had there, even with some external support that we had from Sony, just wasn't sufficient to deliver the project and the scope of the project that we had. So it was just hellish, absolutely hellish experience. It ended up not doing particularly well. It wasn't finished to the standard that I hoped to achieve because obviously we were at a stage where we, you know, we had to release. We were running out of cash and we had obligations to release. And so it was a crushing disappointment. And I look back at it fondly in some ways. I love aspects of what we made, but we never managed to make something that that kind of aligned with what I hoped that we could do. So it was, on one hand, it was incredible to have that opportunity to follow that dream. But I think at the time, I didn't really think much about what that would entail and plan how to get there or or how to plan out the various eventualities. So yeah, it was a miserable, miserable few years to to kind of create that, but a great learning experience along the way. So yeah. The way that you're saying it there, it sounds really tough. I can't imagine the stress going on there. You know, I think for me with with Okaboo, that uh, you know, obviously we had a team there, but I was suffering a lot during that period. But I hope that the rest of the team weren't suffering to the same extent. There's a real tension there between the kind of creativity and freedom. Did you ever manage to balance those two things, that kind of freedom and kind of naivety in a nice way and creativity on the one hand with the need to be actually pretty disciplined on the other to get something done on time and and on budget? Now I, I have a better grasp of that. But I think you really need to have in any project like that tension. Some of the best work is done where you've got somebody pulling one way that's like stretching what can be done and then somebody else on the other side just trying to pull in the direction of achieving something that is achievable and and really thinking about the implications of these things and i think once you have that natural tension if you've got those two things in equal measure you end up something that is actually delivered that is great that is healthy for the team working on it but i didn't have that when i was working on okabee i think i because i was doing both those functions of trying to be the producer project manager but also trying to be the one pushing it and stretching it creatively there wasn't that tension there so i was just getting carried away and adding more and more things and just making decisions without really thinking about the consequences i don't know if you've seen jodorowsky's june so it's a no. great movie about the making you know the frank herbert book june and there was a david lynch version that was released in the 80s i think but before that there was this I think Mexican director Jodorowsky and he planned out the most incredible movie and it had Pink Floyd doing the music Salvador Dali was going to star in it 
They had Geiger, the guy that did the, the the art for Alien, doing creature effects and selling their concept art. They had Mick Jagger was going to be in it. It was this incredible, <laughs> incredible plan. But he didn't have anyone strong enough pulling him back. And all of that work was wasted. And the film never got made because there was no yin to his yang. There was nobody trying to keep things in balance to a point where it would actually get made. And those creative impulses he had, and he had very good instincts, were not in balance with another force to kind of shape it into something that was actually buildable. He was going into music movie execs and saying, I'm going to make this movie 10, 12 hours long. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And they're demanding things that there was no way they were going to accept. And obviously, if there had been somebody there that was tempering that creative ambition, it, it could have been one of the most remarkable movies ever made. And I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, it's something that me and Kate talk about a lot. And she's very passionate about this, of, of trying to strike the right balance, to do great creative work, to really push the boundaries, but to do it in a way that is harmonious. So the team are happy. The result is a commercial success that's still super creatively ambitious. And I think making those key decisions is a really big part of that. But that's obviously a learning process. And I think for me, it took the kind of catastrophe at times that was Okaboo to learn those things and be able to use that feature on. But yeah, I think it's at the time it was tough, but it's definitely helped a lot later on. And, and what happened then between Okaboo and, and where you are now, which is an amazing place, the stuff that you're talking about with Lego is, as I said, it, it's, it's a kind of dream job. I mean, little Simon in Portsmouth going to the shop. If you said to that child now, I'm in charge of digital play at Lego, what, what do you think that kid would say? Generally, mind would have been blown. Going back to the earlier conversation, I remember thinking that that wasn't a job option that was available. You know, like working in video games, working in Lego, those were such far away exotic things. Mm. But I guess at the time when you're a kid, you think about the things that you see and the people that you know. And I guess it's a little bit different now with the internet that you're much more connected to people and doing very different things. But I guess at the time, you know, you look around you and you think the jobs that I see are the jobs that I could do. But yeah, I think honestly, looking back at that, it would have it would have seemed extraordinary that this, you know, I feel unbelievably lucky that that it has worked out the way that it has so yeah my mind would have been blown and probably would not have believed that that's the way things would have gone let's take it to the point where you finished Okaboo and you've had this really draining difficult period of your life several years you said and um when was that roughly when did that kind of finish so I think that was like maybe 2011 okay Maybe somewhere like 2012, maybe. Mm. So there's still a reasonable, you know, there's almost a decade between then and now. So question, how do, how do you pick yourself up from that kind of, I mean, it's more than a bruising experience. How, yeah. how do you pick yourself up to the point where you're now in this this amazing place that you are now? Yeah, it was, uh, I remember at the time feeling very humiliated because there were some reviews and in magazines that you know like we got like a four out of ten and you know that scene is like quite a mark of shame and i understand that you know the experience the game really just did not deliver on on what we hoped to deliver but you know we were getting like nine out of tens and ten out of tens for orlando so it was a real shot and i i remember you know going to conferences and feeling you know, ashamed and embarrassed about about the way that things had gone. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was it was definitely tough for the first little bit. But I think, you know, reflecting on it, I think going back to, to somewhere that was a little bit more aligned with my experience and, and passions and something that was a bit more approachable, decided to go back to doing something for mobile again. Really started thinking about ideas for a mobile game that maybe was a bit easier to create it was more aligned with how games were going then and games have made a shift from paid apps so Rolando was a you know a game that you pay up front you pay you know three five dollars and and you pay as much as you want to a game that was free to play so these are the games that you download for free and the in-app purchases or subscriptions are mm. optional but you can play for as long as you want for free so it's a different way of thinking and looking back at that space and trying to think how we could create a game that was very much aligned with that and deliver really fun Really great experience. I remember at the time, a lot of the free games, free-to-play games were not super high quality. And I think I was wondering whether we could do something that delivered a lot of the fun and the, and the experience and playfulness of Orlando in a way that maybe those free-to-play games weren't doing. And quite inspired by a game called Animal Crossing, the Animal Crossing series, which had a, a kind of play experience that felt like it would work really well 
on mobile and nobody had really tackled a game that had that kind of gentle open-ended style of play so pursued a game and made a game called seabeards uh Uh, that we released in yeah in 2015 i think that wasn't the easiest journey for similar reasons it wasn't quite as bad as okaboo but Similarly, I still quite hadn't got the right balance of creative ambition and and reality and production reality aligned. So it was it was a hard process at times and the launch. But yeah, we had some difficulties around the launch that meant that the time afterwards, we were very strapped for cash. And so it was a not dissimilar thing of having put a lot of time and hard work into making this game. We ended up in an extremely fragile position afterwards some of which was absolutely my fault some of which i would say is not but it meant that we weren't able to sustain the team so i had to make some redundancies on the team and go back to just me myself which again was a horrible experience to have to go through that unfortunately the rest of the team managed to get great jobs you know they were super talented jobs because i remember at the time you i remember how downbeat you were and how much you how much store you set by making sure that your team were okay i remember you stressing about helping them find jobs all credit to you. yeah it was it was definitely a super important thing at the time because they had done such great work and they were such great people and i wanted to make sure that they landed safely and you know fortunately fortunately that did work out you know well for mm. them at the time i remember feeling very angry I think it just hadn't quite worked out again the way that I'd hoped twice in a row. So it was another quite bitter pill to take. But it actually ended up with a happy ending. Me and Kate ended up bringing the game back about a year and a half ago and taking ownership back from our publishing company and revitalizing it and fixing up, you know, loads of bits that were that were wrong with it. And it ended up building a very healthy happy player base and it's something that we're still figuring out how to take that forward now so despite the challenging launch it's nice to have that back and active and being played again but it sounds as though even that has you've come out the other side of that is that how it feels now yeah it definitely does i think again it was it was hard to kind of get back into it after that and the thing that's so annoying is that if we'd had made different choices around launch, a few key choices, the outcome would have been very, very different. I think it's uh. it's it's a very different situation to Okaboo. So with Okaboo, the game was not strong. It hadn't been finished to the level that we needed it to. And there were a lot of things that just didn't work with it. Whereas with Seabeard, it wasn't the case. The process of bringing it back, I think if we'd have had a bit more runway after launch, if we've had a better capacity to address things there, just made some tweaks and just followed it through. I think it would have been a very different story. But again, a learning experience. And I think that for me was not thinking things through in a different way, in a more commercial way, in a, in a kind of business relationship way. That was a learning experience there. Yeah, frustrating. I think it could have taken a very different path. But as you say, it ended up good in the end what you feel very passionate about you know this is a game you worked really hard on that you think is a really good product and it didn't do as well as you'd hoped how do you sit with that do you go over it a bit or or do you not allow yourself to go down that route definitely do a little bit i think the process of bringing it back and remastering it and making it the game that reflects more our hopes at the time was very cathartic and did give me a good sense of closure there and i think ultimately it's okay to look back on that and when things aren't quite as raw as they were at the time i think a big thing is it genuinely has given me a much better sense of of how to balance things out in terms of creating products in terms of creating services in terms of approaching these kind of projects and giving me a much better bird's eye view of how these things can sit together and help hopefully provide kind of guidance and input on future projects so yeah i don't regret any of the things there i think that you know looking back on it at the time i definitely you know, there were a lot of strong feelings at the time from both of those mm. projects that were challenging. It's a cliche. It's better to to kind of reach and try and do something difficult and not achieve them and learn from those experiences than it is not to try. I'm proud of, of surviving both of those things and coming through the other side. And without a doubt, you know, that has really given me the foundation to continue with the work I'm doing now and hopefully will continue to. You made it, I remember you saying to me it was a big step for you to to go to work for Lego because all throughout this period you'd been working for yourself hadn't you or mm. you were either in charge of a, your own company ridiculously young and with all this the pressure that comes from that 
or you're kind of self-employed. And so the, the move to Lego to work for, a, you know, one of the biggest, well, certainly biggest brands on the planet. I don't know how big the company is, presumably pretty large. You weren't sure about that. I remember you saying that, or yeah. is that right? I don't know. Is that fair? But yeah, at the time, I think I was worried that it would be a difficult transition. Personally, working from a company, four, five, six people to 14,000, that's a, a huge step up. You know, I couldn't do any of the things that I'm doing now while I was working at Hansa because in terms of resources, in terms of opportunities, in terms of everything that, you know, we have at Lego, it just wouldn't be viable to take on any of these kind of challenges there. So I think that was a big part is to take on bigger challenges and, and learn and, and just become part of something bigger. It was quite appealing. But it was something I wrestled with quite a lot of the time. You've mentioned Hand Circus. Hand Circus is your game studio. I don't know. Am I describing yeah. that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, game studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you work on that with Kate, your your partner, right? Yes. Yeah. So okay. me and Kate run that now. Who's been instrumental in getting you where you are now? Apart from yourself, of course. Um, you, you presumably had something of a hand in it. And I'm thinking Kate has always always been there with you and and has has helped you on a lot of this stuff so I'm guessing she's one of those people but is there anyone else as well yeah so absolutely Kate has been instrumental I think in in giving me the confidence to pursue each of these things you know it was amazing having a partner that really believes in me and and really believes in the dreams that I want to pursue and has really just been the most incredible support along the journey where they're helping celebrate when things go well uh, and helping <laughs> commiserate that. and support me yeah she is uh as well as you know commiserate and and, and kind of you know just uh just hold my hand when things are, are tough mm. and you know she's been with me every step of the way but I think as well at the beginning like when I was questioning my own ability to move into more creative areas you know she was super encouraging um you know in the early days of my career when we were dating when we, when I was you know working at the same company as her way back when a lot of those early you know, moments of, you know, crisis of confidence or feeling I wasn't good enough or feeling like I could be a games creator or be somebody that that works in more kind of creative aspects. I remember my first job review back then, I was like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And, and my bosses were saying, um, don't do that. <laughs> just, just do this. And I remember at the time being like, is this it? Like, and again, reminded of this is a closed off path. Kate was just like, Enough. Go and pursue your dreams. And I think having somebody that was really kind of egging you along the way was, was amazing at the time. But on top of that, yeah, my parents were, were super supportive. I remember having, when I was little, like maybe eight or nine, they, they gave me and my brothers the most incredible gift, which was this computer room. So we had this box that was given to us, this huge box. And inside this huge box was a smaller box. And inside this even smaller box was a, was a key. And we knew that there was this room that they'd been kind of doing things for the last few months. And so we were obviously enormously curious as to what it was that they were doing there. Uh, and then, right now, and you've already told yeah. me. Well, well, I, I, I ruined the punchline there, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was like, what is happening here? What is, what is in this room? But then, so when we found this key, we all ran downstairs, opened it, and found this room had been transformed into the most amazing kind of 80s-style futuristic computer room with a TV and Acorn Electron stickers for different games around the place, game magazines, and three stools for the three of us to sit on with our initials on the back. Without a doubt, that was a oh, formative wow. part of my, uh, of my kind of passion for games and for computers generally, was having this place to delve into those passions. My mum taking me to, to the Trocadero to play video games in what was at the time the most incredible arcade in London while she sat for hours, you know, having coffee, well, we just ran around like, you know, hyperactive kids playing all these incredible important arcade machines. Part of the reason I put this podcast together was because I've been wrestling myself with the idea of what success is. Part of this came from, as you know, years and years ago, I had had kind of a, a breakdown of sorts. And I found myself questioning a lot why, where my life was going and, and what it meant to be successful. And I was a bit ashamed of myself. I felt like I'd had a breakdown whereas people who I saw as successful you know people who are rich and worked in the city for example and did 80 hour weeks and they seemed able to cope and why wasn't I and that kind of thing those sorts of questions still kind of haunt me a little bit part of the reason I set up this podcast was to ask a few other people it's a, it's a ridiculously long-winded way of doing it is to ask other people what what do you think success looks like what is it what you mentioned there is probably the most dangerous trap in thinking about any of this kind of stuff is when you start comparing yourself to other people in any dimension, 
the results are always terrible. I think it's one of the things that that is so problematic about social media is it encourages that way of thinking of why don't I have that? Why don't I why aren't I doing this? Why aren't I doing that? Well, so and so's done that. Well, I should be doing this or I should be at this stage in my life. And I think that that I, you know, certainly spent a bit of time thinking like that as well. And it only led to to dark places and paths of thinking that that were not in any way constructive. And also didn't really resonate with what's important to me. I, I think certainly early on, I was much more in that mindset of external validation, awards being very meaningful, you know, like somebody giving you an accolade or giving you a badge or something that's like, hey, this I, I mean, this means something to me. I have value. I have worth. I'm good at my job. It's a very destructive way to think. And I think that this, this, the sooner you can get out of that way of thinking, you know, obviously, if that stuff works, great. You know, if you get that, that's a nice little moment to enjoy but i think you you can't ascribe deep meaning to that kind of external validation or comparison for me over time the moments that i guess have made me feel like i've been successful uh, are more and more just is it fulfilling is the work that i've done fulfilling obviously i'm talking more in a professional context do i feel like i'm doing meaningful work has it been fulfilling to perform and does it deliver results that are meaningful to me. Say with Seabird, the biggest thing was knowing, just seeing the number of people that had played it. So we've had 4 million players. And then thinking about that and thinking about what that adds up to in terms of those people hopefully enjoying the experience and and, and just reading some reviews, especially when the game came back, just hearing those moments that people have had with the things that, that me and the team have made and there, you know there was somebody talking about how they were in long distance relationship and they were playing seabed on the bus they were traveling to and from and it was a thing that kind of just gave them something to do and gave them a moment of enjoyment and happiness and entertainment in a time that was super tough and i think that for me is is really i guess the moment that i feel like i've had some success probably those kind of personal connections and just hearing moments that there's been an impact and i think increasingly so and i think Probably more so now, I guess, as I'm moving into a different stage, moments where you're able to help other people realize things that they're trying to do is becoming more and more fulfilling when it's less focused on making the things that I want to make, but helping other people fulfill their ambitions is a really fulfilling thing for me personally. And I guess that that's probably where I line up with success. If Let's hope that you are helping me be successful with this podcast. I really appreciate your well, time, Thanks so Simon. much. For, it's been really a super fun conversation. Thanks for giving me a chance to just talk about myself for an hour. It's a rare opportunity. Best of luck with the podcast. Can't wait to hear more. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. It's, it's been fun. Well, there we go. Hope you enjoyed that first episode of Serendipity Soup. Huge thanks to Simon for sparing some time to speak to me. Lots of thank yous to Anna Gunn at McGunn Media for her fantastic editing skills, as well as general words of wisdom on all things podcasty. Also thanks to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork and to Acast for hosting. Remember, if you think your life could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon for another serving.